you have a Bible, whether a hard copy, digital, on your phone, a tablet, whatever you may have, if you have one with you, open to the book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, if you find uh, Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, two Corinthian letters, and then they get small for a while, Galatians, and then Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at a number, or, or three different passages this morning, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, and James 3, as we talk about the wisdom of God. So last week, as Harry reminded us, we talked about the, om, the divine omniscience, God is all-knowing, and today we talk about the wisdom of God. We're in this series um, on the the high, lifting up our low view of God, to have a high view of God based off A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and looking at the attributes of God out of a high view of God. Uh, we, our worship is lifted, our awe and wonder are lifted. We have greater love for him, a greater desire to want to know him, to seek him in prayer. It becomes not the things that we should do, it becomes the things we want to do because we're, our view of him just gets lifted up and he begins to change our hearts. It comes, part of that comes from our knowledge of him. As we begin to understand who he is, he changes us to become more like he is. And so today, we're talking about the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God. The word wisdom, as we know it, and there are sermon notes in your bulletin, you'll be able to follow along if you want, uh, but the word wisdom is, according to the Oxford uh, Dictionary, is a noun that means the quality of having experience knowledge, and good judgment. It's the quality of being wise. It's having experience, knowledge, so closely tied to God's omniscience, his all-knowing, is his wisdom. They, they go very much hand in hand. The quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment is the quality of being wise. In practical terms, wisdom is the use and the application of knowledge for a specific outcome. So the more knowledge you have, the greater potential, I'll say that, the greater potential you have for wisdom because you have to put knowledge to good use. Just because you have a lot of knowledge does not mean you're necessarily a wise person. Tozer says though, that the meaning of wisdom as we understand it cannot fully withstand the weight of wisdom in relationship to who God is. So our understanding of wisdom cannot fully bear the weight of what the wisdom of God is all about. So think about it this way. Imagine an ant. Ants are amazingly strong creatures. They're able to carry objects 10 to 50 times their weight. A human being is able to carry objects about one and a half times their weight. Some less, some really, really strong. You know, you see the NFL combine, if you're a sports person, you followed the Steelers and all these guys who were gonna draft and they're bench pressing, you know, oh, this guy bench presses three times his weight because this guy's like massive. But that's the exception. And then there's a lot of us who, 
one and a half times, like, yeah, yeah okay, maybe like a half a time my weight. <laughs> I, won't, I won't comment on which side I fall in. I'll let you fill that in. But there's an ant that even goes above the 10 to 50 times. It's the Asian weaver ant. And for all of you who are creeped out by bugs, I, I apologize. This is the Asian weaver ant. And here are a bunch of Asian weaver ants working together to lift and to construct what they are working on constructing. 100 times their weight. It's possible these may be the strongest, according to weight, capacity and body weight, the strongest creatures on the face of the earth, these Asian weaver ants. But Tozer is saying that the word wisdom as we understand it and the wisdom of God, that our word wisdom can't even begin to hold it up. It would be like an Asian Asian weaver ant trying to hold up this five-gallon bucket of concrete floor stripper that I meant to try to weigh it exactly, but my guess is somewhere between 45 and 55 pounds. So just to give you an idea, wanted to make sure I didn't land on my foot, almost did. So anyway, so imagine even an Asian weaver ant If you were to try, if if an Asian weaver ant was to try to lift this, what's going to happen? It's going to be completely crushed under the weight of this five-gallon bucket of floor stripper. And that is the concept that Tozer is trying to get across to us when we think about the wisdom of God. That our concept of wisdom If we try to think of God as the only wise God, according to our understanding of wisdom, we're going to have kind of a low view of God. Sure, God's wise, but the wisdom of God is so much higher than even our concept of wisdom. That God's wisdom would crush our concept of wisdom. He's that wise. Tozer says it this way. He says, wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning. So here's his all his omniscience. He sees the end from the beginning. It's also his eternality. It's also his infinitude, these big words that we've been talking about, that he's outside of all this. He has no limits. He sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need for God to guess or conjecture. God's never gone, hmm, I wonder. Wisdom, God's wisdom as he's talking here, sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless perfection. Tozer goes on and says this, all God's acts are done in perfect wisdom. First, for his own glory, and then for the highest good 
of the greatest number for the longest time. And all his acts are as pure as they are wise. So this is, comes out because he's a good, good father. We'll get to the goodness of God down the road. But because he is good, all of his acts, these are pure as they are wise and as good as they are wise and pure. Not only could his acts not be better done, a better way to do them could not be imagined. An infinitely wise God must work in a manner not to be approved, improved upon by finite creatures. Kind of makes our definition and our understanding of wisdom kind of small, doesn't it? When you think of God working in this way. God's wisdom is far beyond anything that we can ever begin to comprehend. His divine omniscience, his all-knowing, and his absolute limitlessness, his absolute infinitude, enable him to will and to act with infinite wisdom. Now, I think I was telling Mara that sometimes it takes me so long to get my head around this, so... I understand when you're thinking about all this, like, oh, kind of disorients us a little bit for a little bit. And that's okay. Because these, it expands our view of God higher and higher. All of his plans, all of his purposes, and all of his actions are the result of his infinite wisdom. So it's important for us in this idea of God's wisdom, not just to know that he is wise, but to know that it affects the way that he acts. So this morning, we will seek to understand in finite ways the infinite wisdom of God so that we might seek to act and to imitate our creator in that same kind of wisdom. So change my heart, O oh God. Would you change it to be more like yours, that we would act in wisdom as he is wise? So let's begin there. Let's begin with understanding the wisdom of God. Understand the wisdom of God. So two passages that we'll look at that will hopefully help us to at least expand our view of God's wisdom. The first is in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And from it, we would seek to understand the wisdom of God, that it's God's eternal purpose, that his wisdom is his eternal purpose. Previously, in Ephesians, he's talked about identity. He's talked about who we are in Christ that Harry reminded us of. It's who we are. We believe what God says about us. It's who we are in him. He reminds us about what we once were and what we want and now what we are in chapter 2 and his grace that got us there. And then the end of chapter 2, he talks about this idea that God in Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility in the temple, there was this wall that would have the Jewish people able to access the temple, but there was this room that the Gentiles, it was the Gentile court that they were able to come and to worship God. Gentiles are non-Jews. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile in that way. But Paul says that God has torn down this wall, this dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile, and that in Christ he has made one new humanity. And that he is the one, Paul is the one that has been sent to tell the Gentiles about this new work that God has done. So pick up chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, 
I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration or the outpouring of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Skip to verse seven. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration or the outpouring of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Paul's whole, he's saying there, is his calling was to be the minister of the gospel to the Gentiles based on the revelation that God had given to him. And he calls this revelation, he calls this a mystery. A mystery that was not made known to prior generations. That before this time in Christ, there was not understanding of all that God had purposed, all that God had planned. It was a mystery hidden in ages past, but now as a result of Christ coming and God giving Paul this task, this has been now revealed. And what is this mystery? Verse six that I skipped over. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ. God was at work to redeem creation and he was doing it through the work and through the people that he had created, the people of Israel. But now God, Paul is saying God has revealed more and more the mystery of how he is doing this. In Christ, it's now not just for Jews, it's for all all people. I don't know about you. Since I'm not Jewish, I am so glad. And I trust that you are too, that we live in a day where we don't have to become Jewish, that we now just become followers of Jesus. He has made one new people. We honor what God has done and continues to do, and he will keep his promise to the people of Israel. But we are one people, one people in Christ. It's the mystery. Verses 10 through 12, Paul says this. His intent was that now, and this is 2,000 years ago almost, that now through the church, the manifold or the multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose. In other words, there wasn't a point in time where God said, eh, I think I'm going to do it a new way. He has always been about it. His wisdom is such that this has been his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. It has always been God's 
perfect plan. His wisdom has been such that he always knew this is the way I'm going to bring salvation to the world. And I'm going to use the church, catch this, to show how wise I am to not only all of creation on earth, but all of the angels and the demons about how wise I am in my plan to redeem and to restore a broken and a fallen world because of sin. Think about this. In the way we receive this mystery of the gospel, in the way we receive the gospel and it works out in us, the angels and the demons look and they go, wow, look at what God did. In other words, they're watching us. They're watching the way the gospel has taken root in our lives and the way it forms churches and the way it brings people together in Christ and breaks down dividing walls. They're watching and they're going, oh God, if we didn't worship you already, we're worshiping you even more. We're understanding your wisdom even more. What a privilege that is. We're part of instructing the heavenly beings in the wisdom of God. Because it's always been God's purpose. His wisdom is his eternal purpose. Secondly, and if you would, if you're in Ephesians, just turn towards the front a little bit. You'll go back to Galatians. Then you'll hit 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The wisdom of God and understanding it is the wisdom of God. It's rooted in Christ and it's rooted in the cross. It's rooted in Christ and in the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. And I realize these are large chunks of scripture, but you need the whole picture to be able to get the picture. That makes sense. Paul says this. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, here's that one people again, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. 
It is because of him, Jesus, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse one of chapter two, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. We have, in contrast, the wisdom and the power of God versus the wisdom and the power of humanity. The wisdom of God seems like foolishness to man's wisdom. And the power of God seems like weakness to com- to compared to man's wisdom of the Greeks and power of the Jews. See, God... <laughs> in his wisdom, chose to do things completely different than the way we do. He chose, instead of powering up, to send his son humbly to a cross. For those who want power, for those who want wisdom, that's foolishness and weakness. But for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God's wisdom as he says in verse 30, is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. It's because of him you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And his power is rooted in the cross. Back to verse 18. So that no one ultimately, no one, from what verses 27 to 29 say in verse 31, so that no one can boast before him. If we can come before God and say, look how good I am, look how wise I am, look how well I've done, I get the glory. And not him. Tozer said, God has always been about the ways that are going to be first and foremost for his glory. And secondly, for the good of his creation. God has been at work and his wisdom is seen in Christ and his power is seen in the cross. His wisdom is not like ours and as Tozer said, a better way could not have been imagined. Some people would argue with that. Some people would say, I could come up with a better idea. And I believe that's why there are so many religious ideas and so many religious systems. And all of them are based in what I can do. And the wisdom of God says, let him or her who boasts, let him boast in me, not in themselves. So he brings and confounds the wisdom of the wise and the power of the strong. God's wisdom is seen in Christ and in the cross. Lastly, God's wisdom is seen and understood in that it is revealed by the Spirit. The rest of chapter two says this, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, 
but the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, but, or, but not the wisdom of this age and of the rulers of the age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. This is the eternal purpose of God. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had understood what God's plan and purpose was, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. However, verse nine, as it's written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And understand, a lot of times this is a funeral verse. What is yet to be, this is very much a present verse. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things. We looked at this last week on the knowledge of God, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, but that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man or woman without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. The Spirit searches all things, the deep things of God, and he reveals the hidden secret wisdom of God in Christ that has now been revealed. The wisdom of God is spiritual, and it is revealed to spiritual people. All right. Sometimes I go to a conference and I feel like somebody just got a hose, hooked it up to a fire hydrant and then turned it on full blast and stuck it right in front of my mouth and I'm supposed to drink from it. I recognize and understand and hopefully go back through the week and look at these and meditate and ponder them. That's a lot of information in a short amount of time. That's a lot of scripture. I recognize that. So thanks for sticking with me for a few moments. But it's important for us to understand these three things. It's the wisdom of God. It's always been God's eternal purpose. It's rooted in Jesus and in the cross. What seems like foolishness to man is actually the wisdom of God. And all of this wisdom is revealed to us by the Spirit. It's not something that on our own we are able to comprehend. We are able to understand. We need the Spirit, which is why we often pray, Holy Spirit, would you lead us? Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Holy Spirit, will you open our eyes, our minds, to understand your truth, your wisdom? Because on our own, I can't. And I think I can speak for all of us. We can't understand. Because this is the manifold, back to Ephesians 3, the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God. It's kind of like a prism. If you are up here and looking at this, all the different ways you turn it and look, you can look from the bottom, you can look from the sides, top, down, 
every way that you look, especially with these lights, everywhere you look, in every direction you look, there is a new reflection. There is a new understanding of what is in there. And some of the coolest prisms are when they have light in them, refracting it, and the light refracts in different ways. And so in a way, that's what the wisdom of God is. It's this multifaceted wisdom that for all of eternity, we will look at and we will say, ah, I didn't see that before. The angels and the demons in the heavenly realms are looking at it and they're going, ah, that's what you were doing back there. Oh, that's what you're doing right now. Oh, I see where we're going, sort of. But God sees it all perfectly. And his wisdom would crush our idea of wisdom. Because his wisdom is so multifaceted. It's so interconnected, so interdependent, that in his wisdom, his plans and his purposes are being accomplished, and he's not figuring it out as he goes. He sees it all. He knows it all ahead. So the next time you open the scriptures, or even look at those passages again, reflect on, God, what have you been up to? What are you doing? Wow. It will lift our view higher and higher. It will reflect the wisdom of God and we will marvel at it the more we understand it. All right, so what does this mean for everyday life? James chapter three. So if you're in 1 Corinthians, make your way back. You'll go through those small books like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There's two Thessalonian letters. There's two Timothy letters. There's a Philemon in there. There's Hebrews. And then right after Hebrews, which will be probably the biggest one you'll get to in all of those, right after Hebrews is the book of James. James chapter three. This is where we want to kind of boil this down and bring it to a point of understanding today. Out of this understanding, we want to be like our father. We want to be ones who act, not by our wisdom, but by the wisdom of God. It'd be one thing just to understand, oh, God's wise. It's another thing, we who are created in his image and likeness to understand that we are created and intended to live according to his wisdom, not according to the wisdom of man or the wisdom of the world. Act by the wisdom of God. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Act by 
the wisdom of God. And to do that, we need to first understand that there are two kinds of wisdom. Paul kind of talks about it earlier when we looked at Corinthians. But James talks about it. There are two kinds of wisdom. There are two kinds of wisdom. There's wisdom that comes from heaven. In verse 17, there's wisdom that comes from heaven. That's one kind. And I hope that's the kind of wisdom you want to live by, is the wisdom that comes from heaven. But because there's a second kind of wisdom, wisdom that does not come from heaven. Verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and the NIV says of the devil, but really the sense of it is it is demonic wisdom. So here's our choices. Wisdom from heaven, this is the wisdom of God, or wisdom that's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That second is that wisdom of the Greeks. It's the wisdom of the Jews. It is conventional wisdom. It's what everybody agrees is right. (laughs) That is the wisdom of the world. There are two kinds of wisdom. Our choice is, which one are we going to seek to act by? The wisdom of God or the wisdom of this world? And so, for me, one of the helpful things to be able to see first where am I at is to seek to evaluate the fruit of your wisdom. Evaluate the fruit of your wisdom. Verses 14 and 16, or 14 to 16, says, here is the fruit of the earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly and spiritual of the devil. For where, verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Here's the characteristic fruit of earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. Bitter envy, selfish ambition that bring disorder and is where every evil practice comes from. That's the fruit. That's the fruit of earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. That's the fruit of the wisdom that just gets passed as this is the way to think, this is the way to operate. But heavenly wisdom, the other fruit, is verse 17. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. And understand, there's an attitude that this comes from. And that is back to verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in pride and arrogance, and I know the right way right? By deeds done in humility. There's the attitude it comes from. By deeds done in humility that bring about purity. Then 
peace-loving. Then being considerate. And this idea is considerate of other words, others. In other words, listening to another person's point of view. Can I be very honest? I think this is one that really is huge today. How often do we listen to the point of view of others? You don't have to agree with that point of view, but do you even understand their point of view? This is the, the, the core of being considered. This, the fruit, how can we be peace-loving if we're not considerate of other people's point of view? And then, submissive. Does that mean that we always just have to do what other people are saying? No, but it does mean that we come in a posture out of humility of submissiveness to others. Of not my way, of not I'm going to subject you to my way, but I am coming first. I'm coming humbly before you. I'm even as Jesus did. He said, I, I set a standard. I set the, the way for you to show one another. The greatest of you is not the one who comes in power, but the one who comes in servanthood. The one who bows down and is willing to wash the feet of another person. We don't wash feet, but... How often do we come first seeking peace and impurity and loving peace and being considerate of the other person's perspective and being submissive and being full of mercy and the resultant good fruit of being impartial and sincere, which means this, that we come in not having our mind already made up. Does that mean we don't know what we believe? No. But it means this. When I come into a situation, I don't already have the idea this is what you're, where you're at and this is what you're doing and this is where you're going to go with it and this is why you're doing that. But impartial. I'm coming in to understand you, to listen to you, In sincerity, too. This is the fruit of godly wisdom. The fruit of demonic wisdom is I'm going to power up because I'm driven by my ambition of what I want to do and where I want to show I'm right. And I'm going to come in power and seek to subjugate. So evaluate the fruit of our wisdom. I, I read an article about a man who heard a sermon around this subject and this idea of looking at the fruit of his life. He stepped back and he was able to ask the spirit where he was at and what he realized was he was full of anger and he was full of bitterness and he was full of hatred and it was all directed, as he waited on God, it was all directed towards those who didn't align with his political beliefs. 
And so as he recognized this, he then took the next step and he said, why am I there? And where, where he came, this is, this is descriptive, it's not prescriptive, it's not what everybody should do necessarily. This is just what he came to understand was he loved to listen to political talk shows and political TV shows. And he would come away from that, those people, that, this, la, 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 la. And he realized that what he was listening to was stirring him up so much that he was just angry and hateful and bitter towards anybody who did not see the world exactly the way he saw the world. And so he took the step and he said, I gotta stop watching and listening to this because what it is doing to me, it's wisdom that is not from God. It is wisdom that's of this earth. It's spiritual, demonic. I need godly wisdom. Now, I, I, you, you may go through this and evaluate the fruit of your life and be like, okay, I see the fruit of wisdom, godly wisdom. And, but there may be areas in all of us that it's where, where might that fruit not be good? And where is it coming from? What is the, why, where is the wisdom coming from that's influencing my thoughts that is leading to this fruit? Because lastly, where we want to land is we want to sow peace for righteousness. So much so that James says, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Friends, the way of godly wisdom is one of peacemaking, sowing peace for righteousness. But not as the world does, as God does. Think about this. Think about how God brought peace into a world that was hostile. Did God come in and exert power? No. He came in and showed the world weakness, the cross, to subvert power. It's why the wisdom of the world seems like, the wisdom of God seems like foolishness. It's why power, the Jews looking for power and they see a cross, a savior on a cross. First century Jews wanted a savior who was going to exert power to destroy. And the way of the kingdom, the way of Jesus was to lay down his life, to make peace between God and man. Read the Sermon on the Mount through that lens and you find a radical, radically different way than what we often think about. The wisdom of the world is power. The wisdom of God is upside down. It's weakness, humility, purity, peace-loving, being considerate, listening to others, understanding their point of view and introducing Christ to them in that way.
Godly wisdom is not like our wisdom. So much so that back in the fourth century, there was a monk by the, by the name of Telemachus. I love that name. Telemachus. And he felt God saying to him, as he lived in his cloistered monastery, he felt God saying to him, go to Rome. And so he put all of his possessions in a sack and he set out for Rome. And when he arrived in the city, there were people that were just thronging in the streets and everyone was so excited. And he asked, why is everyone so excited? And he was told, today is the day that the gladiators would be fighting and would be killing each other in the Colosseum. This is the day of the games. This is the circus, is what they called it. And so he thought to himself, four centuries after Christ, and we're still killing each other for enjoyment. And so Telemachus ran into the Colosseum. And as he ran into the Colosseum, he heard the gladiators saying, Hail to Caesar, we die for Caesar. And he thought, this isn't right. And he jumped over the railing from where he was seated and he ran out into the middle of the field and he got between the two gladiators who were there to kill each other for the enjoyment of the people. And he held up his hands in between them and he yelled as loud as he could, in the name of Christ, forbear, put your swords away. The crowd began to protest and they began to shout, run him through, run him through. And one of the gladiators came over and with the hilt of his sword, rammed him in the stomach. And Telemachus, not a big man, went flying back and into the sand. After he gathered his breath, he got back up and he ran in the middle of those two gladiators again and he yelled with his hands high, in the name of Christ, forbear. The crowd chanted louder and louder, run him through, run him through. And one gladiator came over and took his sword and plunged it through the little monk's stomach. And Telemachus fell to the ground, the sand turning crimson from his blood. With what life and what air he still had in his lungs, as loud as he could, he called out, in the name of Christ, forbear. And a hush came over that Colosseum, of which there were 80,000 people. And soon one man stood up and he left. Then another, and then another, and then another, until all 80,000 of those spectators emptied the Colosseum. And that was the last known gladiatorial contest in the history of Rome.
Was it because somebody powered up? Was it because somebody raised an army to stop this terrible practice? Was it because even they got legislation to put an end to gladiatorial contests in, the, in Rome? Was it any of that? No. It was a man who compelled by the example of Christ who laid down his life, stood in the middle and offered himself as a peacemaker, paying the price, the ultimate price with his life. That's what changed it. It wasn't the wisdom of the world that only brings greater hatred and only brings greater bitterness and only brings greater selfish ambition because now I have to win. What you did, now I have to win. Now you have to win, now I have to win. No, it was a man who loved purity, who offered himself, who was considerate ultimately to God, but his way and offered himself as a peacemaker who sowed peace, who sowed peace. Friends, I believe that in our own lives and in the life of the church, when I say church, I mean larger church, that we must sit before the Lord and ask him, Lord, what wisdom are we living according to? Is it earthly wisdom? Is it unspiritual wisdom? Is it even demonic wisdom? And what is the fruit of the way in which we have lived? Or is it wisdom that comes from heaven? Ultimately, the Spirit of God who searches all things, He's really good at revealing those things to us. So there are application points that I could make off of this of where, where I see, but you know what? I really feel the Lord just putting his hand on my mouth to say, I'm better at it than you. I'm better at it than you. And so we're gonna sing a closing song, but I would just encourage you to take those scriptures this week and really wrestle over them and say, Lord, what's the fruit? What's the fruit in my life? What's the fruit? And in the ways in which we operate as a people, as your people, what's the fruit of our wisdom? What's the fruit of our wisdom?